Well, hello friends, it's great to be together again. And I'm actually recording this message quite a long time before it's gonna go out because I'm about to go on my summer holidays. And looking out my window, the British summertime has turned somewhat wintry and it's absolutely luzzing it down with rain. Um, and also tonight is the uh, night where England plays Scotland. And I don't know what the result is, but of course by now, the rest is history and you'll know what the score was at that particular game. And so anyway, it's great to be here together. And I am in uh, Mark chapter six today. And so if you've got a Bible, you might like to turn there. We're in this series called Broken, Lost and Found, how Jesus brings us home to the Father, where we're looking at these different vignettes and stories of how Jesus breaks into our brokenness and our lostness and brings us into an encounter with the Father. And so we're gonna to read today about a moment where Jesus went back to his hometown in Nazareth and had an encounter with the families and friends that he grew up with there. And so we're gonna read in Mark chapter six, starting in verse one. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon, and his sisters live here right amongst us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and amongst his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Well, you know, several years ago, I was... Uh, awoken in the middle of the night by the Holy Spirit who spoke to me. And I don't know if that ever happens to you. It happens very occasionally to me. But on this occasion, the Holy Spirit woke me up and he said, Phil, the church needs to guard against the spirit of offense. The church needs to guard against the spirit of offense. And seemingly at that point, the Lord went back to sleep and I was left wide awake wondering what on earth he meant. The church must guard against the spirit of offense. And I was reminded of that as I came to today's passage because it's all about offense. It's about Jesus' hometown being offended at him. The spirit of offense grips their hearts to such a point that it says Jesus was unable to do any mighty work in Nazareth. And there is something about the spirit of offense which disables Jesus' ability to work both in our hearts and also in our churches and our cities. And I would suggest to you that this message has never been more relevant because we are living in the age of offence. Like people are offended everywhere at the moment. You know, identity politics has become a new kind of byword in today's culture. You know, identity politics is is really a counterfeit enemy strategy to discovering our true identity in Christ. Instead, the world now would push us to define our identity in terms of our victimhood, in terms of the things that have offended us and the wrongs that have been done to us. 
Richard King, an Australian writer, recently wrote this uh, about politics. He said, politics is increasingly a matter not of reasoned argument, but of identification. In other words, debates, whether it's in the Houses of Parliament or whether it's on Twitter or with your next door neighbours, you know, resembles who's in which gang. It's, it's like a kind of playground argument. Who's in which gang? Who do we identify with? This is the world that we're living in. And a whole younger generation in particular are being uh, grown up in a world where to take offence is actually a sign of virtue. To be offended, to live with offence against others is actually seen as being a high-minded or moral person. Um, one particular writer I read, th read this week, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, wrote this. She said, And so we have a whole generation of young people on social media so terrified of having the wrong opinions that they have robbed themselves of the opportunity to think and to learn and to grow. I have spoken to young people who tell me they are terrified to tweet anything, that they read and reread their tweets because they fear they will be attacked by their own. The assumption of good faith is dead. What matters no longer is goodness, but the appearance of goodness. We are no longer human beings. We are now angels jostling to out-angel one another. God help us. It has become obscene. And what has become known as woke culture is gripping society day. Woke culture is being awake to issues of social justice and injustice in society and it's gripping postmodern thinking. And you know there's a sweet and a sour to woke culture. That The sweet is that we stand with victims of injustice but the the, the sour is that sometimes we define ourselves only in terms of our victimhood rather than our new identity in Christ if we are Christians. The, the, the sweet of woke culture is that we stand up against bullying in all its forms and that is good. But sometimes woke culture can lead us to become bullies ourselves. And actually that offence with those who've hurt us or harmed us can cause us to silence or cancel out everything that we disagree with. The right to become offended has become the biggest right over all other rights in our culture today. We are living in the age of offence, so this is a very relevant message today. And I tell you what, if you are a Christian and you believe the Bible, you are in the front line of being amongst the most offensive people in our culture today. You know, we are no longer living in a neutral world when it comes to Christianity. We are living in an anti-Christian world, an anti-biblical world. Just, just take our ethics around sexuality, around gender and around family. Just those three biblical ethics. If you have a, a conservative traditional view on or any of those three things as a Christian, you are in the firing line in a culture which is offended at that viewpoint. And so, as the Lord said to me all those years ago, the church needs to guard against the spirit of offence. Those words have never been more true as they are today. And of course, Scripture tells us to guard our hearts against offence. Proverbs 10.12 says that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers over offences. Or Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to one's glory to overlook 
an offence. And so living an unoffended life is a choice. And so I just want us to learn some lessons from this encounter that Jesus has in his hometown to help us navigate these issues. And the first one is a comment about miracles and mindsets. You know, Jesus' reputation, as we read this passage, was becoming well known as a miracle worker. He, uh, after the age of about 30 years old, leaves Nazareth, his hometown, and he begins to preach in all the surrounding villages. And he becomes known as the miracle worker. There is power when he preaches and he prays for the sick. And so he comes back to Nazareth, the place where he grew up, where he spent 30 years of his life. And remember, Nazareth is just a small place. It's maybe 100, 200 people at most. And so the people that he is interacting with in this passage are people that knew him very well. In fact, they were people that knew him the best out of anybody because they'd grown up with him. And, you know, they knew him as the carpenter. He's the town carpenter. You know, when I need a carpentry job, I call Luke Hale. Hello, Luke. But when they needed a carpentry job, they called Jesus. He was their guy. He, they had him on speed dial. If they needed a chair made or a table made, they'd call Jesus because he was the town carpenter. And now, all of a sudden, he has become the miracle worker. I don't know if you've ever stopped to ask this question, why is it that Jesus does miracles? And on the face of it, it's quite a simple answer, and that's because Jesus hates people being in pain. He comes to help. He comes to alleviate our suffering. That's why he does miracles. God's compassion compels him to come and meet us in our pain and brokenness and do miracles in our lives. So on one level, that's why Jesus does miracles. But on another level, the reason that Jesus does miracles is to change our mindsets. He comes to do miraculous things in order to change the way we think about the world. Every miracle is actually an invitation to a changed way of thinking. You know, I remember the very first miracle I saw as a young, young boy. I was about 10 years old and I saw someone's leg who was, one leg was way shorter than the other. And I remember seeing it grow to be the same length. And as a 10 year old, I remember just being changed by that moment. That miracle left me realising that Jesus is actually alive for the first time ever. It wasn't just that I saw something, something changed in my thinking. I realised that Jesus is the King and he is alive today. But in Nazareth, they see the miracles, but they're not changed by them. They applaud from a distance, but then they're swallowed by their doubts. You know, it's an interesting encounter in uh, Mark chapter 8 where Jesus has just fed 4,000 people. He's multiplied from just seven loaves of bread. He's multiplied it to feed 4,000 men plus women and children on a hillside. And then it says immediately after, the, the Jesus' disciples get into a boat with Jesus and they've only got one loaf of bread for the journey and they start to quarrel. They get hangry. They start to get food anxiety. Um, I just like to say... I have food anxiety. My wife laughs at me often for my food anxiety. Well, this is what they have in the boat. They've just seen Jesus multiply it to 4,000 people. And now they're looking at their bread thinking, how is this going to feed all 12 of us? And Jesus says to them, he's like, guys, did you not see the miracle that you just witnessed? 
Do you have so little faith? Do you not understand? They had refused to let the miracle change their mindset. It wasn't just about a miracle of provision. It was about them seeing that God is our provider in every circumstance. It wasn't about bread. It was actually about beliefs. And that's why John's gospel, when it talks about miracles, calls them signs. They're signs that are meant to point us towards someone else. And so, friends, every miracle is an invitation into relationship to start thinking like God's royal sons and daughters, to change us from thinking like victims into thinking like victors, to think like God. And so, friends, one of the ways that we stay out of offense is that we recall to mind the miracles of God and we allow them to change our way of thinking. We are no longer paupers and orphans and slaves. That's no longer who we are. And every miracle is an invitation into transformed thinking so that we no longer live as offended people, but we live as victorious people who are thankful and full of gratitude and full of expectation about what the Father will do. Miracles are meant to change minds sets. Secondly, the thing we see in this passage is that judgmentalism is the breeding ground of offence. Instead of allowing the miracles to change them, Jesus' hometown crowd begin to grumble and they begin to make judgments. They're like, who does this guy think he is? He's the carpenter. And yet now he's getting all haughty and proud and he thinks he's a rabbi and he thinks he can heal the sick. Who is this guy? We saw him grow up. He's the son of Mary. Judas and Simon are his brothers. And they begin to make judgments about Jesus. Familiarity with Jesus starts to breed contempt in their hearts and judgment starts to rule the way they see Jesus and receive them and it says they could not believe in Jesus because of the judgments they made. Friends it's so easy to do this, it's so easy to let judgmentalism into our hearts when it comes to other people to literally judge a book by its cover rather than its contents. I remember a time where I did this and I was I was on an airplane and it was pre uh, we just boarded the aeroplane and we were waiting for them to close the cabin doors. I was sitting in my seat and I had an empty seat next to me. And if you know, if you travel a lot, often in those moments you pray that no one will come and sit next to you. Well, at least I do. And so I was like, oh Lord, please let that empty seat remain an empty seat. And it was a long haul flight. It was like a 10, 11 hour flight that I was doing. And it was close to them closing the doors when one final gentleman got in and started walking down the aisle towards me. And I kid you not, he was about six foot five. He was dressed in leather biking gear. He had a huge kind of long ponytail. He had tattoos all up and down his arms. He was, he was huge. He was literally he was massive. And I thought to myself, Lord, let it not be him. <laughs> But sure enough, he walked towards me and he sat in the seat next to me. And uh, honestly, I, I judged this book by the cover. I thought, gosh, this, this guy, he doesn't look like a very nice character. But you know, the funny thing was, during the whole journey, this guy next to me did nothing but watch Disney movies on the chair next to me. He watched The Lion King and The Little Mermaid and Aladdin, and he watched literally watched cartoons. And I thought, oh my gosh, I have judged this book by a cover. I am sorry, Lord. But we so often do this, don't we? 
And this is what they do in Nazareth with Jesus. And there's all sorts of reasons why we make judgments. And I would suggest to you that a lot of our offence and the spirit of offence is rooted in judgmentalism. Uh, First of all, we make judgments because of unfulfilled expectations. People don't fulfil the expectations that we have of them. Um, In this instance, they expected Jesus to act one way, like the carpenter they'd seen growing up, and yet suddenly he changed. He was moving in the power of the Spirit in a way that they just were not expecting and just defied logic, and they could not accept it. And so often we make judgments because people don't, don't behave in a way that we expect them to. Someone once said this, that assumption is the mother of all frustration. In other words, when we assume people will do X or Y and they don't, it leads to frustration and judgment and offence in our hearts. This is what we do. People act in a way that we don't expect. We get offended. We make judgments, particularly about their motives. We think, well, they did that because they don't care. They did that because they're not interested in me. They they did that because they're still angry with me. They, They did it because of X or Y. And we make judgments about people's motives. Secondly, we make judgments sometimes because of our own pride. You know, when our own pride gets hurt, we make judgments and we get offended. You know, here Jesus is doing things that none of his hometown crowd could do. And he's making them look bad. I wonder for some of them if their pride was hurt and offence takes hold. You know, I'm reading uh, Romans at the moment in my own devotional life and this week I came to Romans chapter 2 which is all about making judgments. This is what Romans 2 verse 1 says. It says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge one another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment on others do the very same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's all about judgment. And these are the words I wrote in my journal following uh, that passage this week. This is what I wrote. Judgmentalism is wrong because none of us are superior to anybody else. We have all fallen short. Only the perfect judge who judges on the basis of truth has the right to pass righteous judgments. When we judge others, we actually condemn ourselves. In other words, we reveal to others that our grasp and understanding of grace is poor and insufficient. To judge others is to be proud, haughty, inflated of one's view of oneself. When we judge, we reveal the condition of our heart. Judgmentalism is actually a form of contempt for God's kindness. It pours scorn on his kindness, which is meant to enable a new way of thinking in us. In other words, repentance. His kindness is a guide towards a new lens on the world where we no longer view people from a worldly point of view, but we see through the same lens as God, kindness, forbearance and patience. These God qualities are the opposite of judgmentalism. Friends, we've got a wage war on judgmentalism because if you allow it into your heart, 
you are not far from living in the spirit of offence a lot of the time. We've got to instead take on these God-like qualities, forbearance, patience, and kindness towards other people, to live in that, to not live as superior, but to live as understanding, believing the best, trusting other people, and fighting hard to live life like God. And then the last thing that we see in this passage is that unbelief and faith can both amaze Jesus. We read at the end of Mark 6 verse 6 that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. You know, there are only two places where it says that Jesus was amazed. Here, where he's amazed at their unbelief, and in another story where he encounters the centurion's faith for healing. And it says Jesus was amazed at his faith. Friends, the question is, in which way do you want to amaze Jesus? Through your unbelief or through your faith? And here's the thing. Unbelief and faith are both jostling for the same space in your heart. The same space. How are you going to amaze Jesus? Through your trust, through your faith or through unbelief, which comes from offense? It's a battleground. It's so crucial to deal with our unbelief so it doesn't turn in to offence. I don't know about you, but I want to live a life that amazes Jesus because of my faith, my childlike faith. Jesus says, you know, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? I want the answer in my life to be, yes, Lord, find faith in my heart. Let me be one that amazes you. That word amaze literally means to be awestruck. Isn't it amazing that you and I have the capacity to make God awestruck by the way in which we believe him and trust in his promises? I tell you what, living a life of faith is a key to revival. There was a revival that that had been put aside for Nazareth, but it passes them by because of their unbelief and it amazes Jesus. Friends, can I encourage us in these days, like no other, to live with childlike faith and dependence in God, that what he says is true. Therefore, let's believe it and obey it and enjoy it with all our hearts. Let's set our sights on amazing Jesus with our faith. And so friends, in this season, this unusual season, let's guard ourselves against the spirit of offense. How do we do that? Well, number one, you let the miracles of God change your mindset so you start to think like God. Number two, deal with judgmentalism and superiority wherever you find it and on your heart. Instead, clothe yourself with humility and with kindness towards one another. And then thirdly, let's just amaze Jesus by the simple childlike faith that we have. Wage war with unbelief and instead put all your eggs in one basket and trust him because you can. Amen.